0: Good morning to all. If you're a Cowboys fan, you say, it is a good morning. (laughs) Only if you're a Cowboys fan. Um, We don't want to hear about any other teams. Church, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys once again. Um, I I had the opportunity to be here with you guys last week. And as I mentioned before, uh, last week with you guys, if you don't know who I am, my name is Adrian Castillo. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Grace Bible Church previously was serving as the associate pastor, now uh, leading our Spanish ministry as a pastor of Grace in Español. Um, and so, but today I get the opportunity to, to share with you guys Grace Bible Church here in English and continue our series uh, in the uh, non-negotiables, non-negotiables. But before we move on, I do want to address everyone at home and just acknowledge that I know we know we have a lot of church family that that is home, uh, a lot of church family that is is just going through uh, this COVID situation. And we just want you to know that we're praying for you. Our hearts are with you. We miss you here. And we just uh, continue to pray that you would heal, heal quick, and get back to 100% so we can be together again. Um, And so... As we continue this journey in non, the non-negotiables, looking at the five solas of the, Re- the Great Reformation, um, we've talked about Scripture being the only authority for salvation. And we talked about grace being the only basis for our salvation. This week, we're going to talk about faith being the only means for our salvation. So we got the authority for salvation, which is the Word of God. Right? There's no other truth that can move us to or that God uses to move us to this truth of salvation. And grace being the very foundation and the basis for which God, in the way that God gives us this, this salvation, which is a gift, it's unmerited favor. And now faith being the means by which we come to be saved. Well, we, and the means by which we come to be saved. And two things we want to answer today about faith the one, first thing is what is faith? And the second thing is what does it acquire for us? Why is this so important? Why is it important for you to walk out today with an understanding, just a simple, basic understanding of what faith does and what faith acquires for us or what it is and what it acquires for us? See, in, in 1519, a uh, couple of years after the Reformation, Martin Luther was still wrestling with this truth. Martin Luther was still wrestling with uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 17, and trying to figure out what is this truth about God's righteousness? What What is it about this truth? Why does God hold humanity to this standard that no one could ever reach, that no one could ever acquire, that no one could ever live? Martin Luther came to the point of even hating this verse. He came to the point of even being upset and angry with God over this verse because he said, it's not enough that we as humanity would suffer because of the original sin that entered this world through Adam and Eve, but... He also now puts upon us through the gospel, this standard that no one can reach. And through the gospel, he puts upon us the very wrath of his for sin or his own wrath for sin. But then one day in one of the towers in Wittenberg, Germany, as he's tirelessly just searching the truth of this verse, he comes to understand, and here's what he wrote. He said, I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the person lives by a gift from God, which is by faith. He says, I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. But it is a passive righteousness that is the one by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the person will live by faith. Suddenly I felt that I was born again and entered paradise itself through the open gates. And it says, suddenly Luther no longer hated God, but he rejoiced in his name. Church, when we come to understand these doctrines of grace, unmerited favor, And the doctrine of faith alone in Christ alone that we can never work for it. There's nothing we can do. There's not enough beatings we can put on ourselves to try to make up for our sin. There's not enough things in this world that we can deprive ourselves of to try to make up for our sin. There's not enough church services that we can go to to make up for our sin. There's not enough that we can give to others to make up for our sin. But that simply to make up for our sin, we have to come to Christ in faith and faith alone it causes in us a great deep love like Martin Luther had, where now we can live free of the weight and the guilt and we can live free to serve God and continue to pursue his truth and continue to live out his truth in our lives without any extra weight holding us down. Because see, without faith alone in our lives, what we are truly living are unrealistic expectations. And in marriages, if you're, if you're married, I think you understand what unrealistic expectations are. Those are, those are, that's an issue that we have to deal with in every premarital counseling or even marital counseling as pastors, as we are counseling others. We have to help them see that pretty much what you're dealing with here are unrealistic expectations. The wife expects of the husband what the husband will never be able to do. And so the husband always fails and the wife is always mad. <laughs> Makes sense. And vice versa, the husband expects the wife to do what the wife is never going to be able to, to live up to and do. And therefore, the husband is always upset and always mad. And it becomes a crazy cycle in these marriages because we're living with unrealistic expectations. Church, if you're living your life thinking you can work your way into salvation and that it's by any other means other than faith alone in Christ alone, you're living in unrealistic expectations and you will always be disappointed. But when we step into this truth, then we stand on a foundation that is firm, is solid, and it can support any one of us, no matter what our sins are. Let's take a look at this. Let's go to Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 22. But before we move forward, let me give you the point of the day. And that's this, because God has put forth Jesus as a propitiation, I must believe in him. For my salvation. Because God has put forth Jesus as a propitiation, I must believe in him for my salvation. This is the point that we are going to begin to unpack as we jump into these texts. So let's go ahead and jump in. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. And here's what Paul writes He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who Believe, for all who believe. See, up to this point, uh, these Jewish Christians, the, uh, they were really struggling with this idea that it was faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, they really thought that they had to continue to live by the law of Moses, and they tried to continue to impose that on the Gentile believers, anyone who wasn't a Jew. Well, if you really wanted to be a part of the family of God and be in right standing with God, you've got to obey every single commandment of the, Mo- of the Mosaic law. But the problem with that church is that the Mosaic law isn't just 10 commandments. The Mosaic law is 613 commandments. That's a lot of law to try to obey and to obey perfectly every single day. And so that was never going to happen. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says that the law was given that sin might increase. The law was given that man would come to know his sin. And what we talked about last week, come to know their need for a Savior. See, because if, if I'm a sinner, then I have a problem. I've been separated from God. And in order to be bridged back together with him, I, I, I need someone or something. And that's what Jesus becomes for, for us. And that's what Paul is talking about here the word righteousness can be viewed two ways. One, it's this this, this great standard of perfection that God expects all of us to live in. Or two, the relational aspect of being in a right standing with God. Most scholars would argue that the second one, the latter one, is what Paul is writing about here in chapter three, verse 21, that the righteousness of God, right standing with God, being in a good relationship with God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there's nothing you can do to get you there. But what what, what does he say? He says, the righteousness of God through faith in whom? Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there this idea of faith and belief is inserted. It's it's, it's introduced into this theme and into this idea that, that we can now be in right standing with God, not because I'm perfect and I do everything right, but simply because there was someone who did something right on my behalf. Right? And so this idea, what is faith? What is believe? We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, right, would not perish but have eternal life. What is the condition in John 3.16? That we would believe. And that same condition we see here for those who put their faith and belief in Christ Jesus are justified, are righteous before God. And so we have to unpack this idea of faith. What is faith? Well, the definition of the Greek word used here is this, believe to the extent of complete trust and confidence. Believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance, complete trust and confidence. You know, when, when we talk about faith, belief, and trust, which are synonyms used as the only condition for salvation in Scripture in the New Testament, over and over again, those are the three words that are used, we believe that the best example or the best word that lets us know or helps us understand what we have to do is the word trust, right? Because we look at this stool, and I think everyone out there, you look at this stool, and you can believe it's it's a stool, right? Because it looks like a stool. It's made like a stool, right? But... The key is, do I trust the stool to hold my weight so that I can sit in it? You see, I've I've been a heavier guy for a while, for as long as I can remember. As a matter of fact, my my mother told my wife we used to shop in the Husky section for Adrian. It's very true, okay? I I can't deny that. But by the time I was in high school, I was a lean 200. (laughs) Anyway there was a time where I was able to travel uh, to different parts, different countries in in South and Central America, in Mexico, uh, different states here in the United States of America. And as a drummer, I I, I was a drummer um, when my wife met me and she thought she was marrying a rock star. So she was really excited about that. Lo and behold, I became a pastor and now life's kind of boring, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, during this time, I remember going to these places, and I would look at what, what's called the drum throne, the, the, the seat that they give the drummers. And I, and, and I learned to study them. You know why? Because there were several times that I went to South America, and I sat in one, and maybe about an hour into the concert, I'm just playing. I'm going, and if you, if you haven't seen me play, I, I can really get into what I'm doing, right? So I'm rocking a lot, and as I'm rocking, the chairs just, boom, just broke. And so I'm like doing a squat in midair, holding myself up, playing the drums in these places. And the other guys are running around the stage. And I say, well, what do we do? What do we do? They get me different chairs. And I'm sitting in them. So what I learned to do was I learned that I can't just trust any chair. You get what I'm saying? I believe it's a chair. But do I trust it holds me up? And so when I would get to these places, I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm not kidding. I would, I would walk around the chair. Thumbs up. This is good. I think it's good. And what I learned to do was after I could trust it, this is key. Don't miss this. I could put my entire weight on it, and I would never fall. See, faith in Christ and believing Christ is knowing without a shadow of a doubt that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient, 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 the forgiveness of your sins and to put you in right standing with God. There's nothing else you have to do because he did it all. And it was exhaustive, it was perfect, it's sufficient for every single one of us. That's what believe in faith means. It's to trust that what Jesus did is completely enough. There's nothing else. The work is done. That's why Hebrews says that he has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father because there's nothing else for him as a high priest to do. He's already done it. It's done sufficient. And so when we talk about trust and faith in Christ, that's what it means to trust him. I can put my entire weight, and unfortunately on the cross, all of my sin went upon him. And I can, I can rest in that. He was perfect, so I wouldn't have to be perfect He died so I wouldn't have to die, and he resurrected so that one day I too will live in eternity with him. Amen? Amen? That's what it means. Let's keep reading. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. Paul says this. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by what? His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here we go again. This is another word, faith, right? By, by redemption in Christ Jesus this this idea that we're justified by grace as a gift it's free there's nothing else we have to do we didn't have to earn it God just simply gave it to us and this word justified that thought of justification what does that mean well it's a it, it, it's a, it's a legal term it's a forensic term and so essentially what what's what's happening here is is for all who believe We're all justified by grace in Christ Jesus, which which means that, that Christ Jesus stands up in the courts of heaven before God and before the heavens and he says, no, the price for their sin has been paid and it was paid by me. They now stand rightly and righteously before you, Father. That's what that means. It's a forensic term. He stands up in the courts of heaven and he declares us, that, that we're righteous before we're justified. The price has been paid for our crime. See, and the, the, the idea of redemption is the, I, this idea now, now, now Paul moves into a financial term, right? Because to redeem something is to buy something. So back in those days, if, if you were a slave to someone and someone else came and purchased you, that was what they called redeemed. And so what would happen now is you would go from this owner to this owner and you would work for that owner who redeemed you and purchased you. In Romans chapter 6, go, you can go and read it at home. Paul says that we were slaves to master sin. But when Jesus died on the cross for us and when we come and we trust him completely like we talked about, guess what happens? He redeems us from master sin and he transfers us into his kingdom under his lordship, and now we serve him. Isn't that amazing? I think that's beautiful. I, I, I'm, I'm blown away by what God has done for us. But that's what it means to be redeemed, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's keep reading. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. I love this. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith... This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, don't miss this, and the justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. Guys, this idea of propitiation is one that's so graphic and one that seems so cruel and mean that those who were translating the the, the, the NIV, they they were writing the NIV Bible, they decided to take that word out. If you're reading in the NIV, you didn't find that word right now. Because this idea of a propitiation is a satisfaction of the wrath of God for sin. It's a satisfaction of, and guess who was our substitute for this satisfaction? Jesus Christ himself. When he goes to the cross, he goes with the purpose. He goes with something and someone in mind, and that's the will of the Father and the purpose of his will, to go and complete it, that mankind might be justified, that that those whom God calls himself might be justified, because no one else could do it, only he could. And he did it, and he completed it. And so when, when we talk about this great justification and we talk about faith in God, we come to see that God, being so loving, sent his son to die on a cross for those who turn their backs on him. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would give your own sons and daughters for someone you love? I said someone you love. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you would give your own sons and daughters for, for one of your enemies? None of us. But that's exactly what God did. Knowing our state, knowing we had fallen short of his glory, knowing that there was no way that we would ever be able to get right with him. He sent his son to this world. And he sent his son to take on his wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's, let's, un- let's, let's unpack this wrath a little bit. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness oppress the truth. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say, that God is unrighteousness to inflict wrath wrath on us? I'm speaking in in, in human ways, that's what Paul says. He says, by no means, by no means. Church, this idea of wrath is truth. We all love a loving God. We all love that. But just like the NIV translators, they didn't love the idea of a wrathful God. Because how can a loving, perfect God be angry and store up wrath? Well, he can do it because he's perfect and his anger is meant to protect those he loves. And his wrath is simply the consequence of the disobedience toward him and his word. And why is he still loving? Because he sent his own son to this world to live the perfect life you couldn't live and to die the death you should have died so he could pour out that cup of wrath upon him while he was hanging on the cross. So knowing that we couldn't take it, he put it upon his son. See, the love of God is shown in the very sacrifice of Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, at the end of time, God will be glorified because there were sinners that he was able to draw to himself. And the entire world will know that these sinners became righteous and they only became righteous because of the love of God. They only became righteous because of his mercy. They only became righteous because of his grace. And they only became righteous because his very son came to this world to be the propitiation needed for our sins. That's why God will be glorified. It won't be because any of us were good enough. Simply because of what he's done for you and me in Christ Jesus. Three things that we see in this text. One, God made it public. He made it public. Two, his judgment for our sins was poured out on Christ Jesus. And number three, man, this is, he justifies the sinner. He justifies the sinner because the payment for that crime has already been paid, and it was paid in Christ himself. Here's what John Stott says. He says, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was completely different. Since God himself was recognized as having given the sacrifices to his people to make atonement, and this is clear indeed in Christian propitiation, for God gave his own son to die in our place and giving his son, he gave himself. Another time John Stott says, he says, thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Wow, that is amazing. We look at the life of Christ and we like, we like to think of Jesus as our, uh, as our savior on the cross. I think too many times we overlook his perfect life. See, then that redemption, the the only way redemption is made, the only way expiation is made, the only way this this works is if Christ Jesus' life was perfect. But we skip all of that. We like to get directly to Passion Week because that's what gets our emotions going. But if you read the Gospels and you read about how Jesus was perfect in every which way, no one found anything negative to say about him, not even Pilate, when they bring him before him. He says, "I, I didn't find anything in this man for which he should die. No wrongdoing did I find in him. This was a Gentile that knew nothing about the law of God, yet pronouncing that Jesus Christ was a righteous man. For what? That he could shed his blood. So that he could take on a cup that none of us would ever be able to to take upon for ourselves. Luke chapter 22, verses 42, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 22 says of Christ, for our sake, he, was, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Here's the beautiful result of this. Don't don't miss this, it says so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew what awaited for him on Calvary. Jesus being man and God all at one time, that's one of the truths that honestly we'll never really be able to comprehend. But here we see him in his humanity. We see him in a moment of of wanting another way. God, Father, if there's another way, I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to die spiritually. Let him whip me. Let him put on the crown of thorns. Let him put nails through my hands and through my feet. But Father, to be separated from you, it's more than I can bear at this moment. If there's any other way, but then he submits himself back to the will of God saying, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. And there's a moment on the cross when Jesus looks up and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that very moment, the sins of mankind fell upon him. In that very moment, the father in which he had been united with for all eternity had to turn his back on him and he was separated And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, this is the greatness of Christianity. It's not the promises, it's what's already been done. The promises are just extra, it's just a cherry on top. But man, if God gives me nothing else in this life, I can stand on the truth and in the joy of my salvation. That I had a God willing to come to this world to take on the sin that he hates and allow his Father to pour his wrath upon him so he didn't have to do it to me. And it's all done by faith alone, in Christ alone. No longer do you have to carry the weight of your sin. It was poured out on him. No longer do you have to act responsible for your own salvation. He is, he's got it. Don't worry about that. But faith alone in Christ alone should lead us to love God beyond anything else in this world because only he could give us what nothing in this world could have. Let's pray. Father, This truth, this reality, your son Jesus, your plan, your love, your mercy, and your grace, we stand in it now. We understand that we are justified by faith alone. And and Father, we pray that you would help this truth sink into our lives, into our hearts, that we live free to serve you and you alone. Father, I thank you for every person that's here and those that are watching through YouTube. And I just pray that if they haven't come to put their faith in you, I pray that you would cause that to happen. And for those of us that have, let us be cemented in this truth. It is faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.